you actually thought you could interview Stalin and make some kind of difference, didn't you? Where's the agenda now? You don't have an agenda unless you call truth an agenda. Welcome to Kremlin File, everyone. And who have we got today? It's Andrea Chalupa. Thank you. Thank you, Monique and Olga. It's an honor to be here. For the very few people who do not know who Andrea is, journalist and author, host of Gaslit Nation, this is Mr. Jones, okay, which I've now watched at least three times. No, she's obsessed with it. And it's not available in Italy. You're kidding. No, I'm not. Wow. No. She had to actually go through her special ways of getting it. It's not available in Italy. I had to look for it for months. It, It got to Italy. (laughs) <laughs> Very Italian. No, <laughs> no I, I had to. No, I had no, no. To, to We find... had a launch. We launched it in Italy. It was a. It was a miracle that it even went to Italy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember Agnieszka did a big event. Agnieszka did press. I saw the press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I can imagine. You know why. a guy who knew a guy because because yeah they, because they, they, the... I know for a fact it was officially launched. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but mm-hmm. it's probably buried. Yeah. It was launched. There was press. There was oh, a yeah. release. There's an Italian name for the film, but they probably buried it. It was very it. buried. And I'll tell you why it's very buried. Because, I mean, here we have, right, a hard left uh, who is still very, very tied to the Communist Party to uh, and a lot, a lot of Putin sympathizers. So I can imagine, okay, why, you know, you, the, the film was... Um, that was difficult to find, basically. But I found it, and right. I watched it. The people it. who need to okay. see the film the most Just buried in case, it. Try to Google your <laughs> yeah. film, because yeah. I think the little yeah. Kremlin exactly. gremlins um, did something, because it's absolutely impossible. It says unusual activity. Or maybe it's my Google, or it's your film. Wow. Really? Well, that's true. We had we had a trailer, an English language trailer of Mr. Jones that was shared uh, 200,000 times. It was one mm-hmm. of the popular trailers by some standard generic trailer YouTube company that their whole sole existence is to pump out these trailers of films. And mm-hmm. suddenly one day, randomly, and it happened to be after um, an episode where we called out Paul Manafort and was like, why does Paul Manafort, Putin's longtime mm-hmm. operative in Ukraine, have a book deal from Simon & Schuster? What a disgrace. Right. Um, and he's going to go on a Kremlin disinformation tour paid for by Simon & Schuster. And so after that happened, suddenly um, the link to this trailer that I had pinned on my Twitter stopped working. It just oh. <laughs> up and stopped working, and and the link Whoa. was set to private. And if you're if you're in the YouTube no. business, you don't want a viral video to be set to private. That's money you should be making. So there's That's zero right. uh, economic incentive to have done that. So I don't I I haven't reached out to the company yet to be like FYI, why did you send this viral link to private? But I thought the whole thing was weird. But with a film like this, yes, yeah. we have all sorts of weird stuff happen where they create blocks and links you want to click on and they really are trying to bury it. So yeah. it's these conversations with the, our little communities, which are so essential to have. Yes, exactly. To try to get the word out. Of, yeah. It really struck me the beginning of the film for anybody who hasn't seen it, please, please, please do. Okay. Because I mean, besides it being, I mean, it's a historical, right? Recounting something that in Ukrainian history should 
be known by everyone. The beginning of the film, Andrea, had um, the character of Gareth Jones, who says there's a war, you know, and nobody wants to talk about it. There's a war going on and nobody wants to talk about it. I mean, the historical parallels to what is going on now are absolutely crazy. Absolutely crazy. The Stalinist, okay, the whole... Uh, you guys did such an amazing job. And I know that you were the, the screenwriter for it, right? The story is yours. The screen, you were the screenwriter for it. So it, it really encapsulates the way that the Soviet state, you know, was. And I'm sure that it, today, I mean, it, there's not much of a difference. This is what happens when you what use you Google to look for your film. Our Whoa. systems have wow. detected a detected That's crazy. Okay, so go That's ahead. Crazy. Tell us about yeah. the story. What motivated you? Because it's more important than ever today. Because yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. besides Putin's, which we'll get into in a yes. bit, Stalinesque yes. speech. Um, you know, we see his Stalinesque mm-hmm. actions of uh, basically mm-hmm. committing genocide in Ukraine, trying to chase Ukrainians yep. off their land, murdering Ukrainians who yep. remain behind. They're specifically targeting Ukrainians. Yep. And yep. I mean, you know, it's like the military target right now is yep. civilian homes and schools and bomb shelters and any place that's housing Ukrainians. Yeah. So tell us about the film, the historical context of the film, yeah. how you got into this yeah. and, you know. Yeah, so the, the whole film, Mr. Jones, was inspired by my grandfather, my Didlonia, who was born and raised wow. in Donbass, wow. which has been under Putin's and which has been being invaded by Russia since 2014. My grandfather grew up in Donbass, speaking Ukrainian, writing Ukrainian, thinking in Ukrainian. Donbass, Eastern Ukraine, used to be a hotbed of Ukrainian national identity. A lot of universities, Ukrainian universities and Ukrainian leading thinkers and the whole intelligentsia was there. So what happened to them? Stalin came in and he engineered this famine. It was a deliberate famine. There weren't atomic bombs then. So how do you kill off millions of people efficiently? You take away their food. And the double win for Stalin was that he could confiscate Ukraine's grain, the breadbasket of Europe, and sell it abroad to Western governments to rapidly modernize his empire in the five-year plan. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, he could colonize the Ukrainians. He could um, finally defeat them after all the years they've been fighting for their freedom and struggling for their their freedom. And so... um, the whole famine, which his soldiers and agents engineered, including sealing off the borders of Ukraine yeah. so the starving refugees couldn't get out and journalists could not get in and leaving people to die slow, painful deaths. Uh, people were driven. There are many cases of people being driven to cannibalism. Um, I interviewed one survivor who talked about how she and her brother were boiling twigs and leaves over an open fire oh to create some sort of stew to feed themselves. Yeah. And a rush and a Soviet soldier came and just dumped it out. Wow. Just dumped it out. So, so they wanted the people to starve. And during the height of the famine, there's even a death certificate that we have to this day where it says the cause of death was simply Ukrainian. And and all of this was going on with a banning of the language. The Ukrainian was replaced with Russian. You had all the uh, leading cultural thinkers and, and political leaders being being arrested, killed, driven to suicide. All the big Ukrainian institutions being shut down. Basically what Putin is trying to do yeah. today yeah. to Ukraine. It's all the same playbook. Yeah. It's another 
Holodomor, as the as as the famine is known in Ukrainian, Holodomor, death by hunger, and so my grandfather survived this with his family, and I'm very blessed because he wrote down his entire life story before he passed away at a ripe old age in Northern California, where I was born and raised, because all of these stories were so strong to him, even in the final years of his life. Uh, my grandfather at a party that my parents hosted met a doctor, and the doctor said to my grandfather, "Oh, your hands are shaking. Do you have Parkinson's? I'm an expert." Parkinson's. And my grandfather said, no, not Parkinson's KGB, you know, like all these. And so he carried this, he carried this trauma with him and he exercised it through writing a memoir. And he left me that book and I, and and I I kept it with me and I, I studied Soviet history in college. I moved to Ukraine for several months after college in 2005. And I started researching uh, in earnest a screenplay because, you know, I'm, I just wanted to reach the widest audience possible. Mm-hmm. And being an American, where do we get our news and history from? It's like, and our, you know, infotainment shows, Jon Stewart, sure, films. Sure. And I remember... I remember watching Schindler's List as a little girl and my and my eyes being opened up to the world and how the world really worked and the evils that that people are capable of and I felt also a sense of justice watching Schindler's List the fact that I could watch this and discuss it and be aware of it that that knowledge carried a, a strong form of justice and I wanted to give that to my grandfather and the countless millions who suffered under Stalin and so I wanted to make a film like that and so I had I had no Hollywood connections I struggled for years to try to you know read every book I could take workshops and how to write a screenplay mm-hmm. and and meet everybody I could and um it was sort of, um, a, a, you know, I watched friends and media surpass me in their careers because I kind of stalled in mine trying to devote myself to this passion project. And I was about to give up um, researching and writing the script because I felt really pathetic. I wasn't getting anywhere. And then in 2015, a group of Russian friends invited me to a march in New York that they were organizing in solidarity with Boris Nemtsov's march in Moscow. Mm-hmm. And a few days before that happened, the Kremlin killed Nemtsov. It was obvious it was a it was a Putin hit, and it was done in the shadow of the Kremlin. And so our march in New York City, which was supposed to be against the war, because Nemtsov, being charismatic and brilliant, united Ukrainians and Russians against the war. He said Crimea is Ukraine and had had to go back to Ukraine. So of course, for that he had to be killed. So our march in New York turned into a vigil for his life, and I saw this haunted shock in the eyes of my Russian friends, and I was just so furious. And so I wrote this page, uh, practically a rewrite of my script. So, you know just sort of grabbing the reader by the throat and saying like, how dare you not care what's going on today? It's, it, it, it's all happening again. This yeah. history is back because we're not, we're refusing to deal with it. And through um, the wonderful Tim Snyder, who I happen to know through all my activism work for Ukraine, um, Tim Snyder um, gave me Agnieszka Holland's email. Agnieszka Holland is a three-time Academy Award nominee. She is a filmmaker's filmmaker. She also directs a lot of extraordinary TV like House of Cards, Rosemary's Baby, The Affair, The Wire. She's a really big deal if you're into cinema, like with a capital C. Uh, She did Europa Europa, the story of a Jewish boy that hides out in Hitler's youth to survive. She directed the original version of The Secret Garden. So I emailed Agnieszka out of the blue. I I had people around her, like her agents and others saying, don't give your hopes up. She's saying no to amazing scripts with big names attached. Make sure you have a plan B. I had no plan B. This was like my last shot. And and what happened was Agnieszka read the script. Agnieszka read the script and right away she signed on. Wow. Because Agnieszka was just as angry as I was. 
she Agnieszka grew up in Russian occupied Poland. She grew up in Soviet occupied Poland. Mm. Both her mother and father were journalists, and her father's official cause of death was suicide while under police interrogation. And wow. on top of that, she was a film student in Prague protesting the Soviet invasion and, and in the in the Prague Spring. And, and she was arrested. She spent months in prison for her activism. So she lived this story mm -hmm. as well. And she was a witness to Soviet atrocities. And so she was ready to she was ready to fight for this film. So with all the projects she was juggling, she always prioritized this one at a time when um, big Western donors wanted to give us millions of dollars that we desperately needed she, they they wanted to give that money with the with the with with the the strings attached to firing me because they didn't like my script mm. they thought it was it went too far they wanted a safer screenplay a more palpable mm. western friendly frothy right. disneyfied right. screenplay and right. with all this money with all this money at stake both times Agnieszka said no no, absolutely not. And Agnieszka and I went off and made the film we wanted to make. We said what wanted what we needed to say. We had a lot of urgency in making it. All the actors, the producers that came together to make it, they all shared that urgency. And there was a lot of creativity, a lot of freedom on set. We had no studio boardroom looking like micromanaging us and looking down on our on us everything you see in the film is raw it's real there's a lot of the actors all had their way with all this material you had um stunning artists across yeah. the board that can contribute and that's why it has this authentic richness to yeah. it it's real and it's yeah. it's really coming from um this this coalition of soulmates that came together that that said that enough is enough already the world needs to wake up this is going to happen again. Yeah. And I remember yeah. being in France in 2016 when when Putin was when Putin attacked the Brexit vote, when he tipped the scales in the very close Brexit vote through all his asymmetrical warfare and corruption. And then he mm -hmm. went on and did the same for Trump in 2016. I remember between Brexit and Trump in that period, being in northern and being in northern France at Agnieszka's farmhouse in France, together working on the script with her, and seeing phantoms of of World War II tanks rolling across yeah. the countryside and just getting this foreboding sense of the war is coming, the war is coming. And that's all we would talk about while working on the script. Agnieszka was like, they're going to put people in camps. You're going to see refugees yep. again flooding across Europe. The war is coming. That was like, that was the urgency we were working with this entire time. And now it's here. And I do want to say like on a sort of silver lining now, I guess, or whatever you want to call it, the whole Mr. Jones crew has reunited through this crisis. Like James Norton reached out to Agnieszka, the star wow. of the film, James Norton. He said, let's get a fundraiser going for Ukraine. Um, several of Gareth Jones's own descendants now are organizing fundraising screenings for the film in the UK. What my, our, one of our lead producers, who was instrumental in getting the project made out of wow. Poland, he's housing something like over twenty refugees in his wow. homes in Poland. Um, we've we've got other we've got other crew members in Poland that are helping refugees that are that are doing all sorts of advocacy work. The whole Mr. Jones crew is reunited over this tragedy in Ukraine right now to do everything we can, and um, it just goes to show like the energy, the intention, everything that we wow. put into this film and, and what it stands for. Okay, now let's take a break and talk about our partner, Athletic Greens. So about six weeks ago, I started using this. And I have to say, it is so simple to use. I mean, I literally pour water from my refrigerator, throw a scoop in, shake it up, yep. drink it. And that is the first thing I've been doing before even having my, you know, 
coffee. Yeah. So I've been using it for about six weeks and it is so easy. One delicious scoop of athletic greens mm -hmm. and you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to help you start your day right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And I definitely need yeah. the focus part these days. I mean, I was really concerned because I'm not really good at taking vitamins, like, you know, pills, like tons of pills and then drops and all this kind of thing. Instead, this is just one and that's it, you know, and it's really, as you were saying, one and really, done. really easy to, exactly. It's just so easy, you know, to use. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immuno-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. And all you have to do is visit Athletic Greens, that's all together, athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Kremlin file to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance for you. And back to our sobering show. Take athletic greens because that's the only yeah. good thing happening exactly. these days. So your film is about the past, about Stalin, about his atrocities against Ukrainians, about trying to erase Ukrainian heritage. And now we fast forward to Putin. And we see Putin over decades laying the same groundwork and then kind of escalating the closer we get now to the point that he is doing everything to eliminate Ukrainians. We see even the, you know, mm -hmm. like famine, but like it's not an exactly a famine, but, you know, surrounding Mariupol, surrounding her son, not allowing, you know, Ukrainians to leave. They're mm -hmm. leaving mm -hmm. them without food and electric and medicine and water for almost a month kidnapping volunteers who are attempting to bring them food and to save lives. We don't even know what's happening in Mariupol. We just went into European and see, you know, dead uh, Ukrainians lying across the streets now that Ukrainian military has gained access. What did you think when yeah. you saw all these scenes and yeah. how this was replaying again? Despite everything, despite all our advances, despite everything, you know, how far we've come since World War II and since the Stalin era, to see it all basically like we're back to square one. Yeah, it's it's important for uh, Western audiences to understand how much the Holodomor matters in the psyche of Ukrainians. Yeah how so many people that I interviewed that went out to Maidan, that risked their lives in, in Ukraine's revolution of dignity, did so because they're trying to avenge their relatives that suffered so greatly under the Soviets, including Hlodomor. It hangs over the, t the whole entire country. It's the reason why this uh, Eastern Russian-speaking um, ex Ukraine exists, right? Th that, that, that Putin and Manafort have tried to divide and conquer and play off of all these generations later. So to, to see this history carried out again, this, this genocidal mass murder of Ukrainians, which is all deliberate. And if you look at the definition of genocide, it is the deliberate mass murdering of people based on a national identity, based on a nation state. It's not just simple ethnic cleansing. It's also the political mass murder of a, of a mm -hmm. specific group of people to just 
with yeah. the aim of, of destroying that nation. So, and, and as we saw with the Holodomor, what Stalin did against Ukrainians, starting back in like 30, 1930, 1931, and the years leading up to the actual famine itself, Stalin unleashed massive hate speech and propaganda against Ukrainians. They mm. had the Soviet state producing videos, uh, sorry, films showing Ukrainian farmers being evil and like a swarm of locusts and then deliberately sabotaging the harvest and, and, and justifying like they must be killed, they must die. Mm. So just like with Putin, who says Ukraine is not a state, Ukrainians are subhuman, and all of that being repeated endlessly on, on the Russian state propaganda machine. Same playbook as Stalin for when wow. he laid the groundwork for his genocide against Ukrainians. And so to see the the bodies piling up on the street again, just like they did during the famine, to see the cultural leaders, uh, to see the political leaders of Ukraine being hunted down, kidnapped and killed and tortured like they were during Stalin's genocide famine. It's just a pain you cannot even imagine. It is a pain yeah. and trauma you cannot even imagine. And to have a new generation of Ukrainians suffer through this, including the children that suffer the worst, right? Because um, because it stays with you. I, the people I was interviewing, they were young when they lived through this, and their stories were vivid. And there's there was always stories of of people refusing to talk about it even though they were safely relocated all these generations later in Canada, in the U.S., they couldn't bring themselves to talk about it because they internalized the terror. And that's very common of survivors of, of terror and genocide. And now we have that happening all over again. I cannot express to you the rage and the sorrow and just like, how, 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 I, it just, I don't have words for it. Yeah. You know, like nobody should have to ever live through a genocide and not a nation twice in the span of less than a hundred years. Right. In less yeah. than a hundred years, yeah. U Ukraine has been through two Russian inflicted genocides. And I think um, people have to understand that what Putin's war is a genocide. And you're going to see debate about that because of the simple fact that if it's a genocide, that means the West must do more. And if the West must do more to help Ukraine, that means the West has to sacrifice. They have to sacrifice with with uh, with fi taking financial hits. You know, Russia, you know, Germany has to quickly mm -hmm. get off of Russian gas. They have to sacrifice with standing up to all of Putin's mobster oligarchs. They have to sacrifice by actually doing something and not wringing their hands and worrying that every little bit is going to escalate things with Putin and Putin's going to escalate regardless. So you're going to see debate about the genocide matter issue aspect of the war because it forces the West to finally do more for Ukraine and, and try to finally give Ukraine what it needs to close its own skies, get the planes over there, get the sophisticated yep. air defense system so Ukrainians can finally protect civilians against this genocide so that's that and then really to add to that i mean uh the, the you know deleting of the heritage i mean we see endless videos of them specifically targeting museums and you know centers that have like works ukrainian yep. work historical works i mean i have i saw videos of a russian soldier you know breaking plaques of of people who ukrainians who have died you know, so, I mean, you see this intentional targeting of anything yeah. that has, you know, shows the heritage of Ukraine. So it's even, you know, on top of yeah. the civilians, yeah. it's also taking out and erasing any kind of like, you know, like uh, material that shows who Ukrainians are, what they are, what their histories is and whatnot. 
Yeah. Exactly. And you even had a Soviet archive being destroyed in a a missile attack. Yeah. Yeah. And also with the West too, uh, like in the film, one thing that does come out is that um, everyone is, doesn't want to talk about it. They, there was, uh, you know, those articles now that, uh, that Jones, um, you know, gets, the articles get refuted. They're, they're sort of saying, well, no, we need the Soviet Union against Hitler. You know, it's the whole appeasement, you know, narrative once again from the West, not standing up to, you know, this kind of tyranny, to this kind of genocide. At the time, the exact same thing happened. And we were, we were, you know, even this is what, right, I guess a lot of people were afraid of would happen again and may happen because that's the whole thing is that we need to keep um, attention and focus on this so that we continue, right? That the West continues with sanctions and also arming, you know, Ukraine even more. So, you know, it, it was, it was incredible to see how they were sort of like sweeping everything under the rug. No, no, it didn't happen, you know, um, because we need, we need stuff. Exactly. You know, it was absolutely incredible. Exactly right. Mm. And I always, Thank you. And I, and I have to point out the historical, it's, it's a historical film. It's a journalistic thriller. It has actors and, and sex and all that stuff that you go, you know, all the stuff you go to see movies for. Um, and, it, and the actors are extraordinary. James Norton, Vanessa Kirby, Peter Sarsgaard, and, uh, and so many others uh, that play even small roles, you know, actors that are really big in Poland and Ukraine and mm-hmm. elsewhere. Um, and so, um, but I want to point out that the the historical beats of the story are correct. We had a whole team of historians that were working on this, you know, reading various fast drafts of the script and, and watching different drafts of the film. Timothy Snyder, who wrote Bloodlands, mm-hmm. Europe Between Hitler and Stalin. That classic book opens with the story of my film's hero, Gareth Jones, and how his whole story of fighting to get the truth out about, the, about Stalin yeah. during a time of Stalin versus Hitler was so was such, was just captured the captured the 1930s perfectly. We had a team of historians in um, at the University of Alberta uh, in Canada. We had we had historians on the ground in Ukraine. Like everything was completely vetted um, to make sure you know we had survivors and, and their families and 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 so all of this was richly done to ensure that we we showed as much of this brutal chapter of, of history, but also provided a cinematic journey. Make, you know, classic filmmaking. But the reality is what we showed in terms of the true horror was nothing compared to the reality yeah. of the, on the ground. If we were to do a, a very accurate film, it would be like one of those Saw movies where it's just morbid yeah. and, and grim and just evil, evil on earth. Because yeah. that's that was the reality of what it was like. So we had obvious limitations there. But I, I do want to point out when people watch the film, pay attention to scenes like the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, where you had leaders of Russian industry, leaders of, of the Russian elite, uh, along with leaders of American industry and leaders mm-hmm. of the American elite coming together in a grand ballroom in the Waldorf mm-hmm. Astoria. Mm-hmm. And the man that's bringing them all together to finally, finally ensure a, a 
official diplomatic and business ties between the U.S. and Soviet Union is the New York Times Moscow Bureau Chief Walter Duranty, known mm -hmm. as our man in Moscow, this charismatic figure. And it showed how disinformation agents in the media like Walter Duranty and the blood money merchants of big corporations, including, you know, across Europe and the U.S., were willing to turn a blind eye. And it was convenient for them that the disinformation agents said, oh, there is no famine. That's there right. is no genocide. That does, that's not really happening because then everybody can turn a blind eye and make lots and lots of money. And that is what happened. That Waldorf Astoria scene really did happen. And it, and it happened while millions were still slowly starving to death back in Ukraine. And yeah. so, and we're seeing that happen again. And, and I always, always comforted myself all these years of working on the film thinking, but if Gareth Jones went out to Ukraine to cover the famine during a time of Twitter and YouTube, he could go directly to social media and his videos and articles would go immediately viral. Yeah. He wouldn't have to wait for the permission of some editor mm -hmm. back home. He can go straight to the people and the genocide could have been stopped. I put a lot of faith into that when I was working on this, the power of social media, the power of, of, of seeing the atrocities. But yet we have social media now for this genocide and the West is still wringing its hands and the West is still you know, worrying about what Putin may think or what he might do and, and, mm. and really being reluctant to cut themselves off from all sorts of juicy blood money coming from Russia, you know? So it's, that's been a big wake up for me saying that the, seeing the limits of social media to drive the leaders we need desperately in the situation to action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. The positive of social media is that, this generation of Ukrainians are armed with the knowledge of what happened and how they were silenced. So they're taking it upon themselves to get every single image, every single war crime, every single rape that is being committed, every single murder, you know, that's being committed. I just, I mean, my God, I just mm -hmm. read the most horrific story of a Russian soldiers walking in, shooting the husband, raping the wife with her son crying. I mean, this is like, you yeah. know, I mean, this is not a war. These are terrorist, you know, attacks. This is genocide. This is, yeah. you know, I, I mean, yeah. it's incredible how far Russia is going. And we're seeing these images. We should be acting way more than we are, definitely. Yeah, because, a I lot mean, faster. The images are there. Yeah. We're seeing what's happening, you know, except Mariupol, which is a, a little bit yeah. harder to get access to right now because Russia cut them off you know, from the information space. But, you know, at yeah. least that's the one, I guess, silver lining is that this generation of Ukrainians are armed. And, you know, whether we're there, we're abroad, we're all banded together to make sure that the truth gets out and then no one forgets, you know, and decides, okay, it's not, you yeah. know, it's not on CNN. So I guess war is over as the atrocities get worse. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no question. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Any? Uh, let me see. Just so that just. Do you have any mm -hmm. fun film questions, Monique? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have any fun film questions? Fun do you want any like questions? behind the scenes juicy gossip? No, I just wanted to remind everybody that the period of time, okay, that we're talking about. All right, because there could be maybe some younger people, okay, who are watching this. 
the period is the fall of 1932 uh, to the fall and winter of 1933. And uh, when we're talking about, um, so as you know, Andrea was saying before, and as we know, it's a man-made famine, we are talking about roughly 3.9 million people it's okay, higher. who were killed. Who were, were yeah, and, the, and those are those are conservative. conservative. Yeah, those are conservative estimates. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So the the famine the famine wiped out five million people. Okay. The vast majority, nearly four million, were in Ukraine. That's right. Correct. And basically, other other different points where it wasn't just the famine itself, but there were also families, just like they are today, who were sent to Siberia. Uh, people who resisted. Ukrainian no uh, families, farmer families who had resisted the collectivization at the time, who were sent to Siberia, um, and no, we had gulags, and lots just of like other, we have now. You know, um, uh, yeah, what now? Exactly. We're up to forty thousand, exactly. fifty thousand Ukrainians who are being kidnapped and like bust over into Russia to some filtration camps. I mean, that's right. Sounds like the Soviet. No, no, that's that. that it, it really struck me as I was watching, and I said, "Oh my God, it's the exact same." I mean, it's uh, it, it's basically the same thing. I mean, we've been using the word genocide with our you no, know, with our posts on Twitter and stuff like that since you no, know, this whole thing started because it seemed it was so clear to me that this was again, you know, not it wasn't. It's not territorial. This is like wanting to wipe out. The Ukrainian, no, the Ukrainians. That's basically it, you know? And it was absolutely, just absolutely, absolutely so clear. Yeah. So clear. Yeah. 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 And other things. Uh, what struck me was yes. the United States, Putin as you were is saying. Building mm -hmm. off the work of Stalin. This is a continuation of the yeah. same genocide. We all should have been. We all should have been, people in the Western world should have been a lot more alarmed when Putin was resurrecting the cult of Stalin. That should have been, he was telling the us signal there. what his plans yeah. were. Exactly. No, yeah. 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 But very few people, Andrea, know about Ukrainian no. history. Very few people. Okay. I mean, it's, it's not, uh, I can tell you here, there's so many people who are completely ignorant about the situation, about you no know, uh, everything that Ukraine's gone through, even before you no, know, when you know, like let's say even before the whole history of Ukraine, uh, before um, before the Soviet Union, for example, and very few people know about that. So you know, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. It seems that you know it's the first time that they see this kind yeah. of thing. Unfortunately. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. Anne Applebaum wrote in her yeah, right, of course. And and Anne Applebaum wrote in her Pulitzer Prize winning book Gulag how mm -hmm. uh in the in the generations, you know, for generations during the Soviet Union, um there was this intellectual oppression where you where and I and I've talked to academics who have who've shared their own horror stories of this where it was the academics from the west 
they were the, the ones that would get the privileged access to the Soviet Union had to toe the party line. They had to be sympathetic mm. towards the Soviet cause. And these were always, of course, people on the left, leftist thinkers. And these were the people that were building up the political science departments, the history mm -hmm. departments. So mm -hmm. as a result, for generations, you had people across the world, especially in the Western world, understanding that part of the world through a Moscow lens, through a mm -hmm. Russian colonial lens. The Soviet Union is a gaslighting term. It was really, the Soviet Union is just another name for Russian empire, you know, Russian mm -hmm. colonial genocide. And so all the countries like Ukraine, the Baltic states, Poland, that suffered greatly under Russian occupation, aka the Soviet Union, didn't have their histories understood or even cared about. They're, they're considered like less than secondary. Um, even though Ukraine, of course, a century is older as a culture, mm -hmm. as a national identity mm -hmm. than, than Moscow, Ukraine was always seen as like, like little Russia, even, even you know, even. Yeah. And so, so you had this whole Moscow lens that has distorted things for so long. And it wasn't until the, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union when finally a lot of like, this new wave of historians could come in, like Anne Apple. Bompton, Snyder, and others, and look at the archives directly and, and, and get the full story, the bigger picture. And finally, you have Ukraine's own history seeping out into the West and, and the agency of Ukrainians coming, becoming you know, more and more understood and respected, but it's still a long way to go. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's really important for people to understand like, why we're so behind on, on understanding Ukraine as, as not a chess piece between East and West or not like a little colony, but its own great, mm -hmm. rich, ancient culture that matters in its own right. Um, and so, uh, and, I, and Ukrainians themselves, including many Ukrainians on the left, progressive Ukrainians, LGBTQ leaders in, across the country have been leading that fight to decolonize their own history and calling on others in the left, other progressives to be like, wake up. Mm -hmm. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not what John Mearsheimer says we are. We're not yeah. some pawn, you know, we want to be a NATO because of what you're seeing happening right now exactly. because of the genocide. It's like, and so I, I think that whole decolonization conversation is, is so urgent and, and, and giving back and not only like for justice, but also to protect Ukrainians today, to ensure their voice, that their agency, that they have, they can, they have their own uh, fate in their own hands, their their own self determination, and not be treated as like a pawn in some larger stupid game, and and be a victim of disinformation like the Syrians were. I think what the left, what progressives did against Syrians in propping up Assad and yeah. denying the chemical yeah. attacks, I, I think one of the great atrocities in Syria were committed by the leftist. That would go on RT, mm -hmm. that would work for RT, that would take RT blood money and just completely exactly. whitewash what Assad and Putin Absolutely. were doing against Syrians. Yep. And so we can't let we can't let Ukraine continue to be a, a victim of that. And, and you and you fight against that by by promoting and, and understand and decolonizing Ukraine's history and forcing people to come to Ukraine through a Ukrainian lens mm -hmm. and not a Moscow lens, which is so deficient. Um, so uh, I think that's an extraordinarily urgent and important conversation. No, and yes, even I is. have to say, you know, yeah. my mom spent her last years in uh, Ukraine, which was uh, during the Soviet Union. And, you know, coming from Russia into Ukraine, she said even like, you know, back then you felt that European vibe. You felt the difference. You saw the difference. You saw the difference of, you know, even though it was mm. occupied by Soviet Union and it was one, 
She's like, you could see the difference. You could see how progressive they were and how, you know, and it's, it's fascinating. And another thing that I want to point out Exactly what you just said, that everyone looks through at Ukraine through a Moscow lens. This is why mm-hmm. our military mm-hmm. leaders and NATO military leaders are sitting and scratching their head, not understanding how in the world Ukrainians are holding back Russians, because they don't yes. understand that Ukrainians yeah. will use every last ounce of their passion. And I have said this forever, being Ukrainian, you know, that... People in Ukraine will fight for their great-grandchild to have a better future. Even if they don't see it, even if their children don't see it, they will sacrifice their lives for their uh, great-grandchildren to have a better life. And you see people now, you know, like everyone here sitting, all the military analysts, I don't understand. How did this happen? We thought Moscow was... And I'm like, (laughs) what don't you understand? They are fighting a century-old... Like, you know, mm-hmm. this, this is how it's always been. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that it was never told. No, it was yeah, It was a story that yeah, was exactly. never told, you see. So this is. No, I mean, and, and they are fighting. Remember, mm. No, I'm saying and they are. They even had they even had battles. They even had pitched battles yeah. of resistance, including several led by women during the famine, during Stalin's famine. Yeah, yeah. no. So yeah, I, I and back then it was people that. versus yeah. the Soviet military, so they obviously didn't stand a chance. Yeah, and I, and, yeah. and one thing that I'm, I'm, yeah, and one thing I wanted to share, you know, you know the whole story of my sister Alexandra Chalupa, the the independent DNC consultant who was, you know, used pub used public domain information to warn everyone about, you know, Putin's operative Paul Manafort's running Trump's campaign. That means the Kremlin's running Trump's campaign. Mm-hmm. And she's warning yeah. Democrats and Republicans uh, and ev- anybody that would listen and paid a big price for that. Huge and price. and um, her life so got destroyed. One thing I, huge price. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to point out was really amazing is that, you know, it, it was it's already been reported that she testified to the Senate as part of their intelligence uh, investigation, which came out and just was a really strong report under a, a Republican led Senate. Um, and right before her testimony, I received a copy of Ann Applebaum's book, Red Famine, Stalin's War in Ukraine, which everyone should read to get the whole history behind the film, Mr. Jones. and. In Red Famine, we dis- I discovered that um, Ann Applebaum cites our grandfather who left hours of testimony to the U.S. Wow. Congress about his experiences wow. surviving the famine. So right before my sister goes before Congress to give her testimony, we find out for the first time, because my parents never bothered to share this, <laughs> you know, and so we find out that our grandfather gave all this testimony. And she's walking in the st- same steps as your grandfather. That is amazing. Yes. Isn't that incredible? And yeah, so Anne cites his testimony in, in Red Famine. So people should read that book and yeah, just see what an inc- extraordinary continuation of history we're living on so many. Fronts, and I think actually that's why I don't know what happened to Mo. <laughs> she disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Italy finally was like, no more of this. No, but it's um it's uh, fascinating because you know, people like don't understand and the most vocal during twenty sixteen were Ukrainians because it's in our blood and we saw what was happening and we we're like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> we are not gonna allow this to happen to America too. And you know, and you see like Ukrainians in Ukraine trying to warn Ukrainians here 
are like, you know, from going about their normal, regular, boring lives are like, oh, something is very bad is happening and we need to get involved. And I've had I've had problems all day with my Internet all day long, all day long. Yeah, it's very frustrating. But anyway, no, that's it. Um, I think so. (laughs) We nailed it. It it I'll just be a frozen screen going. (laughs) No, my God. (laughs) That's about it. That's about it. But anyway, Andrea, the, the, the whole cinematic part of it, you know, like the Metropole Hotel mm-hmm. and the whole atmosphere of, let's say, the, the, what it was like in, in Moscow. And also once you went into Ukraine, you know, he goes in with the train and everything was absolutely incredible. It was like being transported uh, in that time. So a lot of care was given to all of these details to really, really, you know, tell the story the way it was supposed to be told. So my compliments, total, total, total. Uh, in fact, my husband started, I was watching it and he said, oh, what are you <laughs> watching? And I said, okay, no, not now. Go away. I'll, I'll give it to you in a bit. So, um, you know, my compliments because absolutely amazing. No, it is amazing. Thank you so and much. And it's great that you shine the yeah. light because, I mean, it's more relevant than yeah. ever. Because yep. we still see, you know, Moscow is the one who is flooding the West with their money. They're flooding the West with their influence. And you see them, you know, whether like whether it be U.S. Uh, political figures or influential figures, um, European, you know, they're bringing them to Moscow to kind of whitewash everything they do. And then yeah. you see them come yeah. back here and it's like and you see this whitewashing, ha- whitewashing happening right in front of our eyes you know no matter how grave the atrocity by putin whether it's syria whether it's you know murdering naval uh, attempting to murder navalny you know poison on on Skripala and killing a british citizen it's like you still see it eventually get whitewashed and kind of forgotten and it's important to show how moscow you know for the past more than century has used this type of you know operations to build influence so people can come and like report from their point of view instead of what is happening That's everywhere right. else. So thank yeah. you so much for the film. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is it. All right. If you That's need amazing. any help with that, anybody anywhere in the world, if you want to do a screening of Mr. Jones in your language, because it's available in many different languages with subtitles, email the film the film sales agency in london which is eager to help with this because they're they're okay. they, they're already doing uh, charity screenings of mr jones like it's like okay. an all hands on deck moment with team mr jones trying to help ukraine right now so email info at westendfilms.com info at westendfilms.com yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah so That's you can right. find andre on twitter her mm-hmm. film on gaslit nation and Andre, thank you so much for coming. Thank oh, you. Thank you both so much. And for thank all you that for you your do. work. Thank you. Yes. Oh, thank you for your work, ladies. <laughs> hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, KremlinFile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordy Mycellus of Midas Media, with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. 
Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Three Tired Ladies Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Hi. <laughs> yeah, that's the trailer for Where the show. Sign yes. up now. together yes. for this episode. Yes. <laughs> yes. But-